oh, this is medicine? I, I felt like I knew it was a critical moment. And as I was sitting down, he was standing up. I looked at his belly. I hate to say this. I looked at his belly and here I'm looking from his belly because I don't want to be a creep. And we're not used to that because we used to tick checks. And uh, I mean, this, this all came out after basically after World War One. It is time. Time to say adios 2020 and time for the last podcast of the year. Yep. On the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live discussion for December 2020, we're going to discuss the current state of the society with President Linda Keyes. Not only does she crush it on the slopes in telegear, but she has amazing skills at research. In her chat, we talk a bit about the evolution of the society going from an old school style to a more contemporary one, where inclusiveness is valued. And she not only gives tips on some of the opportunities you too can become involved in, but also discusses great leadership skills that are not what you hear about on today's media, but one that's more empathic. We'll then literally dive into the bushes in our second part with Dr. Jim Diaz, whose article on ticks in the December issue is, well, a bit scary, but really good. <laughs> if you're worried about COVID, stay tuned because this TikTok is not a typical one. In fact, one tick has a potential of spreading a lethal virus that could get out of control. Think Ebola, think Congo, think Crimea, think Asia, and they are coming to a home near you. And guess what? Ticks might even make you give up eating red meat forever. So let's go. <laughs> and now, Dr. Linda Keyes and her perspective in the state of the Wilderness Medical Society. Well, thanks for coming, Linda. So I figure maybe I'll record this. We can get this on the podcast because I think it's kind of important that you know, you're the WMS president. That's a big thing. Yeah. And I think we've only had one other woman. Was that Luann Freer way back when? 11 years ago, or, or maybe even 15 years ago. Yeah. She's the only other one. And it's it's been a long time. Yeah. I think it was 04. So yeah. So this is. Yeah. So 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty 16. big. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. Well, I think you've got some energy now. How come? <laughs> You know, Bob Quinn did a really great job of revamping the governance structure and creating a system that is fair and transparent hmm. and provides, you know, much greater opportunity and and makes it much harder for it to be sort of the old boys, old friends club. Because everything, everything has to go through the board now. Um, I mean, for a while, there were like hardly any women on the board. There really weren't, as far as I know. Yeah. So it's been, you know, it's a, it's a systemic problem. And uh, it's cool. We're, uh, I'm doing a project with the journal, and we're basically going to present statistics on how many women first authors, second authors, senior authors, how many women reviewers, the composition of ed the editorial board, the composition of the WMS board, or WMS awards winners and look at the trends over time. And it, you know, it's hardly changed. <laughs> it, it really hasn't changed. Um, I don't know. I don't have any of the data on the um, authors and the reviewers stuff yet. I only, um, cause that's super laborious. Um, and I have two awesome medical students working on it right now, but you know, at least once if like just going public with it and making a statement, I think will help. I mean, we're doing a lot of, there, there's a lot of, I think, good movement in terms of creating systems that will make it things more fair and um, create more opportunities. So the board just passed, well, and I, first of all, we passed a general commitment to diversity in all ways at the summer meeting. I don't know if you heard about that. I did hear about that. If anyone has ever attended one of our conferences, or if you just look at the website and look at the board member names and faces, um, it's a pretty white male uh, looking place. Uh -huh. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that it was clear that that was at least going forward, not intentional, and that we were gonna work to change that. 
and by doing a couple things. So that was, so the statement was that we wanted everyone to feel welcome. And you can find the statement is now on our website with the organization's motto as our commitment to creating a inclusive, diverse and equitable organization. Basically building off that commitment, we um, in the past few months have created a conference policy that has an, the, the goal is to have the people speaking be a good representation of who the members are. So whether that's um, a certain percentage of nurse practitioners or EMTs or mm -hmm. people of various race and ethnic backgrounds, various, you know, women, that was 2019 or 2018. That was the first meeting where we achieved 30%, yeah, 30 women speakers. So what was it before that? 17 you know? is the average. Like, and it reverted so to that. that. Yeah, it um, reverted so to that. This is why we created the conference policy because conference mm. policy says that we'll keep track and that it's not an excuse to say we couldn't find the right people because we all know that there are plenty of women in doing wilderness medicine things who are expert in wilderness medicine topics. Absolutely. How was that received? Was that pretty universally received? I mean, it sounds like Bob was behind it. Bob was behind the governance structure, the new governance structure, which basically means that um, anyone can apply to any open position, that the board votes on every open position and considers all candidates, that it's not just like, oh, you run a conference and you're my friend. So when I move up to president, I'll make you secretary. That was the old way. Wow. The new way is that there's a procedure. It's transparent. The bylaws are available online to anyone who wants to see them. And the board is involved. The entire board is involved with every decision. And, and everybody, any every position that comes open is uh, available to anyone to apply. Now, that doesn't mean if you've been a member for one year, you can, you're likely to you know, get on the board. People have to be right. qualified and the board is going to make judgments. But the, the idea is to make make it clear what the pathway is, make the opportunities available to people and sort mm -hmm. of eliminate this kind of insider. You scratch your, I'll scratch your. Right, which has been the case. Yeah. Right, right. So then, so, so part of the reason why I actually got on the board is because I was feeling very frustrated about the organization feeling like an old boys club and I was doing a lot of complaining and I was like, well, this is dumb. I can either leave or, you know, and shut up or I can make change. But sitting around complaining is not productive. And, you know, there were, it was clear that there's many talented women and that, that other people recognize this problem, but maybe didn't have the feel they had the support or the will to like push on it. And so I just decided that I would get on the board and see what I could do. And I'm, I'm super pleased that in my first six months of presidency, we've been able to working off having this new structure, then commit, getting the board to commit to the diversity statement, to create a conference policy on equity, to create a women's committee. And that I should say the conference committee, the conference policy was, was written by the leaders of the committee, the women's committee in conjunction with the conference committee. So it was really a, a joint project to say, we recognize that there's things we need to do and we're going to, and we're going to put it on paper and say what we're going to do. There's a third, a third policy that we've um, now approved, which is separate from the general conference policy of creating a, an equitable podium and in an atmosphere of non-discrimination, uh, which is, a women's women's policy that addresses issues that really are not just women's issues, they affect everyone, but kind of have fallen into that wheelhouse, things like, um, so specifically women like a, a space to breastfeed at conferences, that's not a bathroom, right? Like that's, a, mm -hmm. that's easy. Right, right? that's a good thing. <laughs> right, and then, then, then childcare, I mean, that doesn't just help women, that helps anyone who's attending the conference with their family. And there's plenty of like, couples right. who are married who have kids who both want to attend the conference but are like juggling passing off the toddler in the in the lobby so oh, this is a boy do i know that yeah right and and so those are just two examples i don't the whole thing actually has a, a, a quite a number of excellent you know concrete steps we can take having a speakers bureau refusing 
to say that we can't find a woman who can fit this speaker slot. In addition, sort of as an offspring of that, I don't know if you if you're if you've been invited to anyone who's been invited to speak at the upcoming conference, but the speakers bureau instructions are now new. So they state explicitly that we're not going to tolerate any slides or comments that might be considered harassing or offensive or discriminatory. There was a member who complained to me, it, this was a man who, who said when he came to the winter conference, he kind of felt like he had stepped back into like, you know, the 1980s, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or like it wasn't, it wasn't an atmosphere and a, you know, there weren't expectations and there weren't sort of rules and guide, you know, standards set that made it place us clearly in the 21st century with regard to being progressive in our inclusivity and our recognition of what may or may not be considered offensive. And that I was really disturbed by that because this this is, you know, in February, we'd already been having these conversations for a while. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, but the work is happening and we're making progress. So I guess in this year, you only have one year have worked on at least some research that'll define where women are standing uh, with regard to speakers. Are there any mentorship opportunities that you're currently involved that you could tell us about for women or for whoever, for guys? We need to learn from you. Um, Yeah, that's another uh, place that we're seeing a lot of growth and and working hard on. So the Women's Committee... um, is now running a leadership conference every other month on Tuesday evenings. And uh, that's a a members only benefit. So you have to be a WMS member, but you don't have to be a women's committee member. You just need to log into the Zoom. Basically, we've been doing all kinds of training on, uh, I think the upcoming one is on negotiations. We talked about imposter syndrome last time. Dr. Sarah Crockett from Dartmouth has been in charge of this with Dr. Camilla. Yeah, Dr. Camilla Sulak. The two of them have put together a whole curriculum and it's really organized. And again, anyone can attend, but it's sort of a women's leadership forum. And then in research, the research committee has now created some research fireside chats where we talk about experts from the research committee talk about things like how to get a grant, how to write an abstract how to design a randomized controlled trial, how to design a solid observational study. And there's a whole series of ones. And then the research committee has created a, a webpage where you can see all the research committee members' interests and people can re- you, who you can reach out to, ask questions, get guidance on topics or studies. The, we've been t- the Women's Committee has been talking about creating a mentorship program, but that is still in the works. It's not finalized yet, but I would love to see that. And then the last kind of big mentorship program that's already happening is uh, with the journal, which is Neil's um, peer reviewer and training program. People who are interested in getting involved in the journal, that's a great way because you can get mentorship and basically work with an experienced editor and or peer reviewer through your first few reviews to kind of get, and you get concrete feedback on, on, on how to do a good review and where you can improve and what you've done right already. And um, so that's been a really successful program. Quite a while you were involved in the journal. Now you're coming on, it sounds like from another angle, um, more of a over, overlaying, reaching, overlaying, reaching, I guess, just an overarching leadership role where you're going to be able to mentor quite a lot of people, bring some, I guess, ideas in the forefront that I think the society has probably not addressed and, you know, certainly is being addressed, you know, all over with all the things that have been happening, especially in 2020. I think these are important. Yeah, so do I. And that's that's what I hope. I mean, you know, I, for a long time was that quiet, you know, my quiet little research corner. I, I like to write, I like to do editorial stuff. And so it seemed fine, but then even I couldn't, that corner, I couldn't stay in that corner quietly and succeed the way I wanted to. And so, uh, as you know, I had to resign, I resigned from the journal and, and but again, instead of leaving in a huff, I decided to make change. Yeah, so this is interesting and I don't know if it's a very easy thing. How do we make change in all this uh, 
stuff where we're all insecure and we don't know how to do it. And, you know, you're mentioning, gee, you know, you must have picked a different Linda Keys to lead. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, um, I so I think it has to do with a couple things. One is being willing to put in the time and energy, like, you know, having, having the commitment and seeing it through. So, and starting small. So if someone says like, we need somebody to, I mean, I applied to the board. Let me just back up a little bit. I applied to the board twice before I got on the board. So I, it wasn't like, I just said, I'm going to get on the board. And then when I got on the board, I, you know, whenever there was an opportunity where I felt like I had something to say or an opinion that I felt needed to be balanced by the other side, you know, at first I was kind of like, well, you know, I'm in a room full of a bunch of guys that I don't really even know. Can I speak up? But then I just started being like, you know, this is what I'm here for. I'm going to speak up. And, and then also saying like, oh, we don't have, you know, a policy on, well, like it, part of it was that I had worked on the research committee and I became the chair of the research committee. And I was like, you know, this, this committee was, it wasn't functioning very well. And so we just, I was just like, okay, we're going to like create better rules for grants. We're going to create better guidelines on how we assess them. And so then someone sees that you're like willing to put in the time to do the, do the actual work of like saying, okay, how, how, what does it mean to make this better? What are the concrete steps? And sometimes you have no idea. Like when I wrote that statement about commitment to diversity and inclusion that the board is now our policy, you know, what, what did I know about that? I just knew that I, there was, I had this idea of what was right and what we needed to do. And I, I got online and started doing research and I looked at a lot of other similar things and, you know, everyone on the board was agreed that we needed that, but, you know, I like, I said, I was like, okay, I'm going to write it. <laughs> and so part of it is just having that follow through of, of saying like, yeah, here's something that's important. And it's going to take some time and energy, but I'm going to see it through to the end. Um, and people, I think other people recognize that. So if, you know, when you do a small project, well, you'll get asked to do a bigger project. And, and I think that the governance of the organization is set up so that there's opportunities for people who are putting in hard work to be recognized now. Um, because it used to be like the committees were kind of free form and, you know, no one ever asked, the board never asked a committee for a goal. So this is the first year we've asked committees to give the board what their specific goals are. And then we can see who's, who's succeeding, who's making good progress, and who are the people on the committee who are making that, who are making that happen. David Gallo says, push yourself. Physically, mentally, you've got to push, push, push. You've got to push through shyness and self-doubt. Goldie Hahn says, I always had self-doubts. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't smart enough. I didn't think I'd make it. It sounds like what you need is you need some sort of an organization that'll listen to ideas. What you seem to portray, which I think, you know, I'm kind of a nerd. I study successful people and how they succeed, is you may have thought, well, I don't know if I'm adequate for the job, but I have a conviction. I have, there's this purpose. And I think in your case, you're not you don't seem to be the kind of person that says, I, I just want to be present because I'm so awesome. But it's more like, you know, there's a need here and somebody's got to speak up. And if nobody else does it, then it's not going to happen. So it might as well be me. And then you did the legwork. You did the research. You wrote the paper. You justified what you were trying to do by evidence. And then you presented that evidence. And then from there, I think things have happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I that makes it sound sort of like clean and straightforward. I think life I, is. I know it's not. <laughs> life is a little more messy than that, and <laughs> but you know, I I think, and I'm not. I am not an extrovert. You're right. Like I did not want to become president so that I could stand up on the podium and be like, "Hey, look at me." I'm not. I'm not either. I know. I, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is surprising, right? Because look at when you stand on the podium, Gerald, like people love to look at you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm really not an extrovert, but I'm with you. Yeah. So, 
but the the point of that is is that um, people, I still I'm I might not be an extrovert, but I, I recognize that it's important to talk to people, listen to people, get input from everybody, and you know I I do not consider myself a networker. There are probably most of the past presidents knew more members than I know personally, but maybe not. I don't know. You know, when people approach me, like I'm, I, I li I'm willing to listen to them and I'm kind to them. And I, I don't, you know, my knee jerk is not to say no to their ideas. It's to be like, wow, let's think about that. And, and that just being kind and open, I think gets you a long way. Yeah. I mean, there are other people who get in with their elbows but that's just not me. Right, right. No, I think you, I think being kind, it's kind of my philosophy too, being approachable, being a great listener. And maybe that's a quality of us introverts is we actually don't really want to say a lot, but we're good listeners and people say, well, that person, they're amazing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how to win friends and influence people. I remember reading that book a long time ago and they actually talked about that where you don't talk about yourself, but you talk about, ask questions about that person. You just lay back and listen. Yeah, I mean, I, I I, don't feel like there's, I had some secret formula. I just feel like, you know, I, I love the organization. I really love the people in it. I think we're, it's an, it's, we're niche, but committed. Yeah, yeah, I think we're committed to one another. And, you know, I, I think we're growing our influence, you know, whether it's in the International Society of Mount Medicine, the International Commission for Alpine Rescue, all these DIM courses, uh, obviously the, you know, numerous wilderness medicine rotations, the WMS uh, medical student rotation, all that, you know, and I think now with the research and the outreach that I think the society's having in the fireside chats, I mean, what a brilliant idea that is just, you know, brilliant. And we're just trying to disseminate information opportunities. And I think that's the changing face of the WMS. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Daryl. Um... I mean, it's remarkable. So, you know, I mean, I was a medical student a long time ago, but I did go to my my first WMS meeting uh, at the world, the first World Congress in Whistler in like 1991, 1992, something like that. And I was just blown away. I was, I was going to do OBGYN. That conference made me go into emergency medicine. That conference um, uh, got you interested in emergency medicine. Oh yeah, because I met all these people who were ER docs and they were awesome, including like so I met Peter Packett. Yeah, and and I knew that I was I was a third year medical student. I was sort of lost. I thought I was going to do OBGYN, maybe Peds, but I I was also like kind of thinking of dropping out of medical school. And then I went to that conference and I was like. Oh, this is medicine. I, I felt like I knew it was a critical moment, and I, I got Peter's address. I, I think Eric Johnson. I, I like got the addresses and phone numbers of everybody I could at that conference, and then I wrote them letters saying like, "Hey, do you have like a wilderness medicine rotation I can do with you, mm. or do you have a research project I can work on?" Mm. And through Peter was like, oh, you can come be a cook on Denali. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> okay. We have I could to work with Peter. <laughs> okay. I could, I could, but, um, and I really wanted to go to Denali, but I also, you know, had, I guess I, I, I recognized that that wasn't going to quite get me what I wanted at the time. And he, he also suggested I call some other people and hooked me up with Lorna Moore in the, cardiovascular pulmonary research lab at university of Colorado. And that's where I ended up spending two, you know, two years during medical school doing research in what was at the time really the premier altitude physiology lab in the country. And, uh, and with Jack Reeves, he like he, Peter had suggested I write Jack and Lorna and I said, I can come visit. And they took me in and set me up. And wow. so I did all this pregnancy and altitude research as a medical student. And then when I finished residency, Ben Honigman, who is you know very interested in altitude medicine, was the chair of emergency medicine at University of Colorado at the time. And he and Lorna said, well, let's get a fellowship, a research fellowship going for you. So I came back as an NIH research fellow after my residency. 
Um, but all because I went to that conference. Boy, isn't that transformative? Wow. You know, I, I haven't told too many people this, but, you know, I was at UCLA and I was doing my surgery rotation at uh, Harvard UCLA and I wanted to become a trauma surgeon. And, you know, it was just so exciting, you know, like OBGYN. I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting, you know, you're in doing all this, all that. And I had this little book and there was this book called Medicine for Mountaineering. It's just a little book put out I by Mountaineers, you know, not very thick. And I'm just reading this at a desk and the chief trauma attending says, what is that? Well, this is a book called Medicine for Mountaineering. And he just laughed. He said, that's the most ridiculous bunch of baloney I've ever heard in so many words. And, you know, I looked at him and as I was sitting down, he was standing up. I looked at his belly. I hate to say this. I looked at his belly and here I'm looking from his belly because I don't want to be a creep. And I'm looking at his face. I'm saying, this dude's a 40-ish year old guy, bad health divorced, probably not around his kids, and he lives in this hospital. Do I really want to be like this guy? Anthony, give me a boy's name that starts with the letter H. Jose. <laughs> Jose with an H! <laughs> and that changed me. To emergency medicine, I also had a friend I was climbing with um, a path dome, and he, you know, he was taking a lead, and we were on the fifth pitch, and he broke his ankle, and uh, you know, I had to rescue him down, and wow. you know, we ended up, you know, going to the emergency department first, you know, in the ER at Yosemite, the little clinic, and then back to UCLA, and this guy Jerry Hoffman was watching over my friend Ben, and you know, both Ben and I said, this guy is awesome, and so that was our transformative experience. I'd never really heard much about wilderness medicine. So I'm glad it was, you know, obviously it was around now. I look back, but that is a cool story you have as well. Amazing. Yeah. And then, and so look, like that was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And, and now there are how many fellowships and for medical students, you know, of course the WMS has two electives. I mean, you know, 30 years, we've come a long way. Well, thanks, Linda. That's great stuff. Sure. Yeah, good. Thanks for hanging out. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, oh, sweet name. Now let's chat with Dr. Jim Diaz, and let's talk ticks, not TikTok. Well, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Journal Club. And my name is Jim Diaz. My background is sort of varied. I began life as a surgeon, and uh, then I became an anesthesiologist and intensivist, so I get called all the time about COVID-19 and how to use anesthesia machines to treat patients. Uh, and then I went back into residency and did a residency in occupational medicine and took my boards in occupational medicine and medical toxicology. So that's basically what my practice is now. It's uh, occupational medicine, medical toxicology with a lot of uh, consulting work with uh, police, EMS, Fire. So that's what I do now. And my uh, interest has always been uh, wilderness-related arthropod-borne diseases and uh, poisonings from mushrooms, plants, uh, envenoming uh, injuries. So that's my background. Amazing. We're going to talk to you, Jim, about a very interesting article about emerging tick-borne viral infections. Now, are you seeing a lot of that in your neck of the woods out in New Orleans? Well, not really, but uh, I operate in uh, several um, necks of the woods. We also have a son in North Carolina, and we have a, a cabin in North Carolina, which is right in the middle of tick country. So uh, I do see a lot when I go to North Carolina. We're uh, here in New Orleans, but uh, we're just too swampy. And ticks are very particular. They're very particular about uh, their hosts, their reservoir hosts, and they're very particular about their habitats. And ticks like two sorts of habitats. They either like grassland, which is why we see a lot of tick-borne disease in Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, or they like forests, which is why we see a lot of tick-borne disease in New England and in the upper Midwest and in North Carolina and in the Ozarks just north of us in Arkansas. So the, the terrain and the, the habitat 
really attract the ticks. Now we do have ticks here in the South, but the diseases that we see are mostly rickettsial diseases uh, like rickettsia parkeri, which is a, an ulcerating lesion. We still treat it with tetracycline, with vibromycin, but we don't have a lot of Lyme disease this far south. You have to go into northern Mississippi, northern Alabama, into the foothills of the Appalachians when you start to get more tick-borne disease. So interesting, where you're at, there's more rickettsial diseases, and it's going to differ from the Lyme disease area. They're not commensal. They don't uh, stay in the same habitat, if you will. That's correct. Now, every now and then we'll have introduced species. They may move around because, uh, as I said, the habitat here is a very shallow water table, which ticks just don't like. Ticks like to be dry. Remember that ticks, what do ticks eat? Well, they eat blood, but blood is mostly water. So ticks actually have a special organ that allows them to excrete water, which is uh, actually under a lot of investigation right now for potential development of new types of diuretics and medications to treat hypertension. Not only that, tick saliva is actually being studied uh, right now because tick saliva also contains a local anesthetic and an anticoagulant. And there are investigations now looking at tick saliva with the idea of developing new uh, anesthetics, local anesthetics, and new anticoagulants. Do these components confer any sort of, a, I guess, an uh, allergic reaction as far as you know, or are they fairly benign with respect to that? That is an excellent question. Absolutely. And right now, uh, I have an article coming out in the Southern Medical Journal called Red Meat Allergy After Tick Bites. Uh, we are seeing in certain people with certain blood types, almost like COVID-19 and its relationship with blood types, uh, we're seeing allergy to red meat that uh, it, it can be very serious and result in uh, both skin reactions as well as in diarrheal reactions, as well as in anaphylaxis, fatal anaphylaxis. So we're actually going to discuss the vector that transmits some of the uh, viruses that we're going to talk about today. That same vector is associated with red meat allergy. And there's a focus of red meat allergy in the United States after tick bites in the area of Virginia, North Carolina, in the Appalachian, Appalachian Mountains and the Blue Ridge, Blue Ridge area of the United States. So, and that is a uh, all allergic. That manifestation is all allergic. Wow. Well, I want to hear about this. Well, that uh, <laughs> I sent that article to Alicia, but uh, it was a little bit uh, outside of wilderness medicine. So they were very interested in it. And it will be coming out shortly in the Southern Medical Journal. And there is an image of the vector. And I will actually show you an image of that tick vector today because it's also the vector of several of the viral diseases that we're going to be talking about. And it's a, it's, it is a tick that it is extending its range. It used to be really confined in the southeast. And so we knew a lot about it, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, but now it's extending its range all the way up into New England and all the way west into Oklahoma, and we're, we're very concerned that uh, this vector is going to really establish itself across the United States, as well as this introduced vector called the Asian longhorn tick. We are particularly concerned about that because it can transmit just about any tick-borne disease, from the spirochetal diseases like Lyme and Borreliosis, to the protozoal diseases like babesiosis, to the bacterial and rickettsial diseases like ehrlichiosis, and uh, all of the rickettsia, including Rocky Mountain spotted fever, as well as the viruses. So we're very concerned about this Asian longhorn tick, which got to the United States in New Jersey in 2017, and now it's already in five or six states. My understanding is with this Asian longhorn tick, it was introduced from China. How did that happen? 
Good question. I mean, it, it could have come on a person. It could have come on an animal. It could have come on luggage. What we're seeing in Asia is the use of migratory birds like waterfowl, ducks, geese, uh, swans, and uh, they're traveling from Russia into South China. The use of migratory birds to actually uh, import ticks into new regions. And that certainly is happening in China and Japan because this Asian longhorn tick, it first appeared in China. And the next thing you know, it popped up in Japan. Well, how did the tick get from China to Japan? Ticks don't fly, but birds do. So it probably came up over on a migratory bird. At least the nymph did, the larval tick, which is the, well, ticks have several stages of development, but larva, several nymph stages, and then the adult male and female stage. And the worst thing about the Asian longhorn tick, one, it can carry all these diseases, but two, the female can undergo parthenogenesis. Does everybody remember parthenogenesis from biology? Let's talk about that. They don't need a male suitor. Uh -huh. In other words, the female can self-fertilize her own embryo so they don't need to mate, and every other species of tick will mate with a male. However, the Asian longhorn tick can undergo parthenogenesis. There are a few creatures that can do that. Some uh, reptiles can do it, but this is sort of unusual for an arthropod. So that's another reason why we're concerned about this introduced species. Well, what's so bad about this particular species? I mean, we've heard about the other types of ticks, you know, specifically, you know, those that cause hemorrhagic fevers, maybe some rashes, things like that, you know, certainly Borrelia, the hard body, those exotic ticks. But why is this one so different or unique? This one is unique because it is transmitting a new disease. And this disease was first identified in China. And it's called the severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome. It has an extremely high case fatality rate, around 30%. There is no specific treatment. It's caused by the severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome virus. And it's characterized by a serious coagulopathy that can result in intracranial hemorrhage and uh, basically almost uh, ultimately a DIC type picture. And as I indicated, there's no treatment. And it occurs in both the immunocompetent as well as the immunosuppressed. It can occur in children, in adults, in patients of any age, and the fatality rate is significant. And so far it's been confined to China, Korea, Japan. But this is the vector for this new virus. Wow. We haven't seen it in the U.S. yet, and we're extremely worried. The vector is here. We don't know if the virus is here or not. Wow. That sounds worse than COVID. I think that's a bigger problem. Oh, it's much worse than COVID. You know, COVID, the case fatality rate with COVID is about what? It's less than 1%. Right. It's about 0 0.3. Interesting. So it sounds like what they're doing uh, in the Far East is they're just expectantly managing these people. It's just all supportive therapy. And are there any predictors for those who will have worse disease than others, or have they figured that out yet? You know, that's a good question that I really can't answer in terms of risk factors. It, it is a disease that can strike the healthy as well as the, as the elderly. You would think that people that might have certain pre-existing hemologic disorders like von Willebrand's or hemophilia may be at even greater risk. There may be an association with blood type as there is with uh, allergy to red meat after tick bites. So I'm sure all of these things are being, being investigated right now. At the present time that I'm aware of, the Asian longhorn tick has not transmitted disease in the United States. I haven't seen any reports to that effect, but that's what we're most concerned about. And we know that it can transmit both bacterial, viral, and protozoan diseases. And we know it is the primary vector 
of their severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome. So then it doesn't really sound like there's any specific drug therapies for any of these tick-borne viral infections, let alone this severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome. What could we do here in the United States, or even if we're traveling in Asia, to basically reduce this threat to ourselves? Well, you know, the Europeans, as well as the Chinese, the Koreans, and the Japanese, they are very concerned about this to a greater extent than we are. And they've actually developed vaccines to a number of tick-borne diseases, including tick-borne viral diseases. And, you know, we don't even have a Lyme disease vaccine. So we have no, we have no tick-borne disease vaccines. So the Europeans have taken this much more seriously and have developed steps for primary prevention. And basically all we can do is to understand the habitats and the areas where we're likely to be expo exposed and wear protective clothing, long sleeves, long pants, uh, and use topical repellents. And we also would recommend tick body checks. So if you can identify a tick on someone, you would remove it. Well, that works well in the United States for these hard-bodied or exoded ticks like you see out in, in New Mexico and out west with uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, the uh, Dermacenta andersoni, and also with the Lyme disease ticks, the uh, Exodes scapularis, the black leg, the black, um, black leg deer tick, which is the Lyme disease tick, you know, these ticks will feed for 24 hours. So you're going to see them, certainly if it's an adult. But the problem with these tick-borne viral diseases is that the disease may be transmitted by a nymph, which is the size of a pinhead, which you may miss. And they also feed for a short time, and then they drop off. So if you have these hard-bodied ticks, uh, that transmit these typical rickettsial diseases and spirochetal diseases in the United States that you're going to spot because they're big, you may not spot a nymphal tick that can transmit these diseases like Powassan virus and then drop off. And nobody will know you have a tick-borne disease unless you suspect it. And you, you would suspect it based on the distribution and the clinical manifestations. Well, that's pretty scary. Preventive clothing and, and uh, insect repellents become very important. It's like we've it's like we've just sort of ignored vaccines for tick-borne viral diseases. So a lot of people are very worried that this could be our next, you know, SARS-CoV-2. Well, are you aware of why we haven't invested more energy or effort into making vaccines? Well, it always boils down to money. Mm. And I think the vaccine developers... Um, they, they saw a rather small market for the Lyme disease vaccine originally confined to pockets in uh, New England and pockets in the upper Midwest. Now, the, the veterinary vaccinologist, they're, they're moving ahead with uh, vaccines for several arthropod-borne diseases, whereas the human uh, vaccine manufacturers haven't really seen any, um, ha haven't really seen potential for profit here. So there was an early Lyme disease vaccine developed that just didn't work out in, in trials and was never really released and it was taken off the market. Are you aware of the efficacy of these vaccines over in Europe and Asia? Yes, they're, they're very good vaccines that were developed by their military. And the reasons the, the army developed these vaccines in China and in Russia and in some of the Eastern European countries like Romania and Bulgaria is because in the forested areas where troops were on maneuvers, a lot of the tick-borne viral diseases were taking down a lot of the troops and were very common. So the military actually uh, took the lead in the development of vaccines for tick-borne viruses in Asia and in Eastern Europe. I guess uh, I'm going to book my first flight to Moscow and get one of those vaccines. Good night. Well, the CDC actually recommends that if people are on an ecotourism trip in Eastern Europe or Russia, that they consider taking 
one of the um, tick-borne encephalitis vaccines. So most of these vaccines are for prevention of tick-borne encephalitis. There is only one vaccine for hemorrhagic fever, and that's for Crimean-Congo hemorrhagic fever. And that was developed in Eastern Europe. That is a terrible disease. It has a high case fatality rate, and it is notorious for nosocomial transmission. Are you aware that uh, that particular vaccine can help mitigate this severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome that we see in this Asian longhorn tick? I'm not aware that it's been tested, but it would have potential. Right now, the only treatment we have for Crimean Congo, and some of our troops have acquired this, contracted it in Afghanistan, is ribavirin. And we know that ribavirin works, but to have a vaccine for Crimean Congo would be very helpful. There have been a few cases in troops stationed in Afghanistan. Interesting. So it sounds like there is a vaccine that exists. We don't have it in the United States. A lot of our therapies have been targeted towards preventative therapy, removing the tick, wearing clothing, personal protection, which doesn't appear to be really a very good panacea for this Asian longhorn tick, which is very small. It might not be detected and it could drop off a body for, you know, after several hours, few hours of you know, being on that host. Exactly. Okay. And we're not used to that because we used to tick checks. And uh, I mean, these, this all came out after, basically after World War One. So we're used to looking for ticks and, you know, looking, you know, in the scalp. And, but if you're infected by a nymphal tick, the size of a pinhead, you're not going to pick it up. And the next thing you know, you develop a flu-like illness with hemorrhagic manifestations. So the only thing we have is where did this happen? What is the geographic distribution? And is the vector endemic? And more importantly, is the virus or the pathogen endemic? Uh, I've actually worked on this. You, you can develop decision trees using probability analysis to determine whether or not you may have acquired a certain tick-borne disease in a certain area. And remember, ticks can also transmit multiple diseases at the same time, which creates a problem because if you have a bacterial or rickettsial disease, it's treatable with an antibiotic like doxycycline. But what if you've got Lyme disease and babesiosis at the same time? Well, babesiosis is a parasitic disease like malaria, and you've got to use an anti-malarial agent. You can use azithromycin or you can use another uh, agent that's also effective against a malarial type agent. So uh, that's called the transmission, co-transmission of tick-borne diseases. And that happens too. And remember, the tick is not impacted by any of these diseases. Right. For babesiosis on a blood smear, you might see some inclusion bodies. Are there any types of diagnostic hints that you might see with uh, the Asian longhorn tick type of disease? The only thing you would see, you know, with the bacterial diseases, as you said, you, you may see the Maltese crosses and inclusion bodies, and you can see that under light microscopy with a Gimsa stain or a right stain, but these are viral diseases. I mean, you're gonna have to use electron microscopy. The only thing you're gonna see under traditional microbiological conditions are gonna be cytopathologic effects. So you'd have to go to see the virions, you have to go to EM. Well, what would you say, Jim, that we need to know as wilderness medicine providers with respect to these tick-borne diseases? Well, I think you need to know about five uh, areas. And area one is that right now in the United States, we have two new tick-borne hemorrhagic fevers. And they're primarily distributed in the Midwest, Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas. And they're very similar to each other. And one's called bourbon virus. Not that it has anything <laughs> to do with alcohol, but because the first case was identified in Bourbon County, Missouri. The other one is called the Heartland virus. And it was first detected next door to the bourbon virus in Missouri. It was felt that um, there were similar diseases and only with EM and PCR 
were we able to separate these two tick-borne viruses. They cause the same type of disease, a hemorrhagic fever. It, it begins after a short incubation period of less than a week, and the patient will develop flu-like symptoms that look headache, myalgia, high fever, and the next thing you know, hemorrhagic manifestations. There is no treatment other than supportive treatment and the case fatality rate for these two hemorrhagic fevers, bourbon virus, as well as heartland virus is high. It's around 30%. And the risk factors are elderly and immunocompromised. So we do have some risk factors for those. In addition, we have another tick-borne disease that was really isolated to New England, particularly upper New England, upstate New York, Maine, even into Canada. And this was Powassan uh, virus. And now we recognize that Powassan virus probably has two clades. It has a deer tick virus clade and it has a Powassan clade. And this is an encephalitis virus. And this virus we used to think was just confined to upper New England. But now another focus of Palestine has broken out in northern Wisconsin and Minnesota. How it got there, we just don't know. Maybe a migratory bird. It is transmitted by the nymphal tick, the size of a pinhead. You may not see it. These diseases, Palestine and deer tick, can occur in immunocompetent patients. They can occur in kids. There was a recent article in New England Journal of deer tick virus infection in, in a child. Once again, this is an encephalitis. The patient will develop initially a, a flu-like syndrome and then develop uh, meningeal signs and then bizarre behavior. Case fatality rate is extremely high and the incidence of post-infectious neurologic complications is about 20%. So you may be left with some uh, dementia, particularly in the elderly. In fact, uh, some of these post-infectious complications in the elderly look just like Alzheimer's. So that's deer tick and Palisan, and they're now emerging in these two areas in the country. So those are two, two types of tick-borne disease, hemorrhagic fevers and encephalitis viruses that depending on your practice location, you need to be aware of. And then point two, that our providers need to be aware of is something that we've discussed in great detail. And that is this introduced species, the Asian longhorn tick. It's got a long name here. I don't know if I can pronounce it. And as I said, the great concern, uh, here's the Latin name, Haemophysalis longicornis, Haemophysalis longicornis, Asian longhorn tick. The great concern we have is that one, it can transmit this new disease first identified in China called the severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome. No treatment, uh, high case fatality rate around 30%. Right now, we're not aware of any risk factors, immunocompetency, uh, you can get it, immunosuppressed, you can get it, kids can get it, elderly can get it. And we know that it was introduced in New Jersey, and now it's moving all over the place. In fact, it's in it's as far west as Arkansas. So it's moved from New Jersey to Arkansas, and the predictions are it can uh, continue to move westward. Wow. The next issue that we need to recognize is that the tick has several life stages. So it begins as a, as a larva, and then there are several nymphal stages. Uh, and these stages are extremely small, and they can also transmit disease, particularly the nymph, because the nymph does need to begin blood feeding. So a nymphal tick is the size of a pinhead. Of course, a female tick is about five times bigger than a male tick, so you're more likely to spot a female tick feeding on you than you are a, certainly a nymphal tick or maybe even a smaller uh, male tick. And a lot of the diseases we've discussed for example, Palisan virus uh, can be transmitted by nymphal ticks. So a body check for ticks may not be as helpful as it is for some of the other uh, tick-borne diseases. So recognizing the stage of the tick and its feeding habits. In other words, the longer a tick is blood feeding on you, 
the more likely you are to spot it when you take a shower or a bath or change clothes or whatever. But what if a nymphal tick is feeding on you that's hard to spot? And the next thing you know, it only feeds for 15 minutes and drops off. Palisade virus can be transmitted to a human in 15 minutes. So this brings up the issue of prevention. So the United States seems uh, not interested in developing vaccines like the Asians and Europeans have. Therefore, protective clothing is important. Uh, insect repellent is important. W when I go fishing, or recently I went to Haiti to uh, help them with some Zika-related issues uh, and help them with some decontamination projects with wastewater. And I just bought several shirts that are impregnated uh, with permethrin, and they're very effective. So I, I recommend that to, to people who are in a lot of these uh, habitats, grassland habitats, as we've discussed, and forested habitats to wear some of these insecticide pre impregnated clothing that are very effective. And they can take several washes before you, you need to either buy a new shirt or you can actually treat it again, which is what the military does. They treat their fatigues again after a certain number of washings. And then the last thing that we need to consider is what's new in terms of uh, tick-borne diseases. And I've already mentioned one thing that's new that Daryl actually uh, asked a question about, and that is allergy to tick bite. And now we have red meat allergy after tick bite. And the vector for this is the lone star tick, Amblyoma americanum. And we're accustomed to that in the South. We thought it was just endemic in the South, but now it's spreading all over the United States from the Eastern seaboard into the Midwest right now. It is also the vector of the two emerging hemorrhagic fever viruses, heartland virus and bourbon virus. Uh, may not transmit a disease to you if you're lucky, but it can give you an allergy to red meat. And uh, a few other things that are new besides the imported Asian longhorn tick, the fact that the Asian longhorn tick is now moving westward, we don't understand that. We have identified one, and this is brand new, and Daryl asked a question about this. People who are in close contact with companion pets in China, particularly cats, seem to have a higher risk for acquiring severe fever with thrombocytopenia virus. So that's one of the only risk factors that we've identified, could be a child or could be an elderly patient. So that's brand new. And the last thing is a study was done in Turkey where Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, well, Crimea is actually in Turkey, uh, right. was identified. And um, the treatment with ribavirin was extremely effective. And the recommendation is if the healthcare provider is exposed to a patient with Crimean Congo and the healthcare provider is not wearing complete protective equipment. And by complete, I'm talking about mask, face shield, eye protection, probably eye protection and face shield, as well as go, and, gown and gloves, uh, that that patient, that that healthcare provider be prophylactically treated with ribavirin to prevent nosocomial transmission of Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. That sounds like the makings for a really interesting movie. Well, I'm glad that we could talk about some of these issues, Jim, that I don't think we tend to talk about. We kind of gloss over in wilderness medicine. I think this is a really important issue that does have to be addressed as far as the awareness and you know just some of the risk factors. And given that a lot of our listeners tend to travel pre-COVID, that is, to some of these interesting areas, and I'm sure that people will once begin to travel again once the pandemic lifts. Knowing this information is going to really help us figure out, hey, you know, there are some preventative measures I can take. There's even a vaccine. And we might even push for some initiatives to get manufacturers to produce the vaccine. Well, thank you so much and be safe. Don't eat too many ducks and <laughs> stay away from licking cats, I guess. That's our bottom line. That's right. Well, good meeting you, Daryl. Great meeting you too, Jen. So Jim alluded to some pictures, and it's on our video on our website. So just look at the video, and you'll see all the pictures 
of the ticks and everything that Jim was talking about. Enjoy. Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from the Wilderness Medical Society. Our official journal is published by Elsevier. Do the CME questions at wms.org under members. We'll talk to you next year. Ciao.